Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. You just can't hardly mention holiness heroes of the past without mentioning the name H.C. Van Warmer. He preached this message back in 1976 at the Allegheny Wesleyan Methodist Camp Meeting, of which he served as conference president for many, many years. The sermon is titled, My Sin is Ever Before Me, and I know you're going to enjoy this powerful message. I want to call your attention here to the 51st Psalm. Now, this is not a, a theological discourse, so it's not just outlined as we'd probably outline things, but the twofold thing I tried to get you to see is right here. Here's a man that in rebellion broke the standard of God that he knew, and he suffered the penalty and the consequences the next 22 years of his life. You better be careful how you deal with sin how you play with sin. Regardless of all of our thinking today, we cannot change what God has laid down in this book. And we're beginning to pay a fearful penalty as a nation and as a people for breaking his standard. Now, I trust you'll pray with us here. Have mercy upon me, O God. We aren't hearing people say have mercy much. If you ever see what it means to be under the wrath of God Almighty, You'll do like David here. David saw he was under the wrath of God Almighty. And he cried out, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to thy steadfast love. He's appealing to God. Then he said, According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, that is, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Uh, another way to read it, have pity upon me and take away the awful stain of my transgression. Have you seen the awfulness of sin, how it looks in the sight of God? Then in the second verse, he said, wash me thoroughly or through and through from, uh, from mine iniquity. Now he's talking about something else. And cleanse me from my sin. Now I'm sorry, I didn't look this up. I never saw it until last night as I was reading it and thinking about what I've been teaching to you in the New Testament, wherever the word sin is in the singular with the article before it, it means a sinful nature. I'll have to look this up in the Hebrew, see that I'm right. And I believe it must be here because the two words are used here. Cleanse me from what? My sinful nature, that in being, that proclivity of sin. He sees something now he never saw before. Then he said, for I acknowledge, here's where we're held up, I admit my transgressions and my sin. 
My sinful nature is ever before me. It's always in front of me. It's always in my mind. Now, here's something strange. And here's why our trouble is today. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now he goes back to the root of his sin, and you and I will have to get back to the root of the thing. He sees now the thing that made him do the thing that was wrong. He said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. I was formed, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, the sin, the sinful nature that my mother conceived me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, in the inner life, down in here where the battle is fought between God and the devil and you, down in here where no counselor can go, nobody can help you, right down in here in the inner life. We're not dealing with the inner life today around the altar. That's why it doesn't hold. Amen. You pray, I'm taking more time here than I should. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inner parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Uh, I like the rendering of this better. Sprinkle me with a cleansing blood, and I shall be clean. He's talking more about them taking a branch and sprinkling something over him. He's talking about the real sprinkling you find in Hebrew, where it says to sprinkle me with the blood of Jesus Christ, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. There's your second. Uh, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Now notice, it sins here. That's what gave me the key to the other. Hide thy face from my sins, my transgressions, and blot out all of my iniquities. That's one work. Then he said, create in me. That's your second a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy person. Ah, I'm talking to some folks this morning. Ought to begin to use that as a prayer. Cast me not away in your carelessness and in your indifference to God and the things of God. Cast me not away. Amen. From thy presence take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto me. Now he gets right down to real business here. He said, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now he acknowledges what he'd done. O oh God, thou God of my salvation. The 17th verse, drop in there. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken in a contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Now you'll find for your thinking in the second and the seventh verses, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Or sprinkle the blood upon me and I shall be clean from the outward. And then wash me thoroughly and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, David here tells what sums up the whole thing that I've been trying to get you to see in four lessons here. 
Uh, God has a righteous standard that you and I cannot deviate from without suffering. David deliberately, willfully deviated from the standard of righteousness that he knew. And he suffered desperately. Now, this psalm is often fittingly called the sinner's guide. This psalm is like a page of autobiography written in the author's lifeblood. It is the utterance of what I read to you in the verse 17 of what it means to have a broken spirit in a contrite heart. If you want to know what it is to have a broken spirit and a contrite heart, you study this psalm. If you want to know how to confess and how to seek God, study the psalm. Amen. Yeah. Nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures can we find so profound a depth and tenderness of penitence joined uh, uh, with such a childlike faith as you can right here in this passage. Now, if it weren't for the awful sin of David, you and I'd never understand the meaning of this song. Now, remember this. David uh, was a man after God's own heart. He is one of the noblest men of his day. You and I better be mighty careful, Brother Frank said more than once. I'm a scared man. I'm a scared man. I can stand here and preach truth to you and go to hell right from behind this pulpit. There's no place in the world as easy to go to hell from is right where I'm standing now, to stand here and preach truth and preach something that is right and then not live it when you get out there means I'm preaching myself into hell. You can testify yourself into hell. Stand up in church and testify something you're not living. My God, help us. He was one of the noblest men. He was anointed by God. He was called by God. He's called by God as a man after his own heart. And yet he trifled with sin and fooled with sin and hit the very bottom. Amen. One thing I appreciate about the Bible it tells you a man just as he is. You read the autobiographies of individuals, and when I was in the ministry younger, I'd read about some of those men looked like they'd never had a failure, never made a blunder, and it seems that as though that was all I was doing. I'd lie on the floor in my study and bawl and squall and so on. What'd they do? Men wrote that. They never put the failures in there. They never put the blunders in there. But God, when he writes a book, he puts the failures and the blunders in there. This is a book that a man couldn't write it, and a man wouldn't write it if he could. That's why I believe the Bible. His downfall is one of the, more, the saddest record recorded anywhere in history. His sin is one of the most contemptible and outrageous against a faithful friend and a faithful warrior. I want to tell you, sin is a fearful thing. You don't know what you'll do with that thing in your heart. You told David a few months before what he'd do. No, sir, I won't do it. If I could see as God sees and tell what some of you will do down here in the future. No, sir, Brother Van Wormer, no, sir. But you will unless you get rid of this thing that's in your heart and in your life. Amen. You remember God sent Nathan to him. I used to preach, but it isn't true. I used to preach that David lay a whole year in his sin and didn't realize that that isn't true. Study the 32nd Psalm and you'll find out uh, differently. You remember when God sent Nathan to him to tell him that little story about the rich fellow that 
took the little lamb, the only lamb from the poor man, to feed his company, and David just about jumped off from the throne. What that fellow ought to have, that man should die, and he should pay fourfold. What did David do? He gave his own death warrant and his own consequences of his sin. Amen. David didn't do like people do today when we're preaching to you. He didn't turn on Nathan, but Nathan gave him some words. Now, you'll see the meaning of it. He said, Behold, thou shalt not die. Jehovah forgiven thy sin. On the face of it, looks like it didn't have anything to do. It was all done. That isn't true. There's something more there that you'll see in a moment. But I want you to realize this. His attitude toward Nathan is the attitude you ought to have toward your preacher and the one that's trying to get the word of truth to you. Did you ever realize why uh, Jesus had no word for Herod when Herod said, won't you say, I'm putting my own words, won't you say something to me? And Jesus was dumb. Why? He sent John the Baptist uh, uh, as, a, as a messenger ahead of him to Herod, and John the Baptist told Herod he had no business to live with a woman that he had, and he took off his head. How many of you have taken the head of your preachers and the ones that have been trying to get to you? But when they got up to preach, sat there and leave through a Sunday school paper or lead through the songbook or look around at the ceiling or out of the window and then wonder why on earth God never has anything to say to you. What are you doing? You're cutting your head off of the one that God is trying to get to you. Just a short time ago I found out why Jesus had no word to uh, Pilate. When Pilate said, well, what is true? Jesus never answered him. Why? Get the inflection of what was there. He said, well, what is truth anyway? It's just the way you look at it, the way you think about it. Exactly the very damnable thing we're facing today. You take that attitude toward truth, and you'll never get a word from God or from Jesus Christ. Amen. One almost hates to take this, but as I started out, David said, as I tried to cover my sin, as I tried to cloak it, there's nothing so damning as to, to try to keep from confessing and uncovering your sin. He said, when I did that, my, uh, uh, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my Lord roaring all day long. There's more, more startling revelation than there is right here of somebody trying to cover their sin and hide it from God. He said, when I kept silence, when I refused to confess, when I knew I'd done wrong and would not own up to it, when I tried to rationalize around it and tried to put a brave face on it and tried to excuse it, he said, I was parts, I was scorched, the moisture of my soul dried up. I want you to notice his appeal here. You pray. I'll have to do a lot of cutting. I want you to notice his appeal. When he cried out, Have mercy upon me, O God. Our trouble today is we're an altar seeking, but we don't have any cry out of us. Why? We have no concept of wrongdoing. We have no concept of sin today. We have no consciousness of sin anymore. In the holiness church as we come to an altar, David had a consciousness here. There's an awakening here. There's an awakening of his conscience. 
There's an awakening of his soul. Why? He sees the wrath of God Almighty hanging right over his head. And if God isn't merciful to him, there isn't one ray of hope for him. I never saw this before until a short time ago. Do you realize uh, that when Je Nathan said to him, uh, Jehovah, forgive him thy sin, that that was the first ray of hope he had? Why? David was under the Old Testament. And under the Old Testament, if you deliberately, willfully, premeditatively, presumptuously committed adultery, there wasn't one bit of offering or sacrifice for you. It meant stoning to death. Well, somebody kind of looking at me. What did he done? He deliberately, willfully, premeditatively, presumptuously committed adultery. He knew she was a married woman when he saw her out on the housetop, a beautiful woman. You women need to be careful how you expose yourself. That night when he should have been out with his army fighting and sit out on the housetop walking around, saw that beautiful woman with a beautiful form, he sent word, who is that woman? Who is she? They sent word back, uh, don't you know that is Bathsheba, that's Uriah, the Hittite's wife, one of his chief officers in the army. He knew when he called her to his palace that it was a willful, deliberate, premeditated thing. And he knew under the Old Testament that it meant death and he could go into the temple and grab hold of the horns of the order, but they could take him right off from there and kill him. You get that in Joab, his general. After David had died, or before he died, he said to Solomon, don't let Joab, my general's head, go down in peace. He's a man guilty of killing two men premeditatively, deliberately, willfully. You remember how Joab ran to the temple, uh, ran to, yes, ran to the temple when he sided in with Solomon's brother that tried to get on the throne and had hold of the horns of the altar. And then I went back to uh, Solomon and said, he's in the temple. He has hold of the horns of the altar and said, if you kill me, kill me here. He said, go back and kill him there. That's Old Testament law. The wrath of God, the anger of God, was right over his head. Not only that, did he commit adultery, but he deliberately, willfully, premeditatively committed murder. And if you committed murder, you were stoned to death. You had no offering if you sinned presumptuously. There was no trespass offering. There was no sin offering. Oh, God, get to us here. You say, was it deliberate? Was it deliberate when he sent notice up to Joab that was in the battle? Put Hittite, put the Uriah the Hittite in the front of the battle, in the hottest spot, and then pull your men back and let him be smitten and killed. You better not be playing around with sin. Mugging around with sin. Fooling around with sin. He had a double thing here. 
and boastings demanded unto the Old Testament a stoning to death without any mercy. Now notice what God said in 2 Samuel 12, 9 to 10. Why have you despised me? Why did he commit adultery? Why did he commit murder? He had something rise up in here that he wasn't conscious of that despised God and despised God's commandment and despised the law of God. Oh, you got in there that rises up. That's why you break the law of God. That's why you violate this book. Sit around and say to the preacher, I don't see anything there wrong. No. Yeah, they say, God doesn't condemn me. My conscience doesn't condemn me. It doesn't happen. God won't do it. The book condemns you. God's word condemns you. Now notice, why have you despised me and the commandment doing evil in, the, in his sight? You say, slain Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have murdered him with a sword of the Ammonite. He, there was another thing. The Ammonites, uh, Amorites were to be destroyed, but they let some of them live. And he used the sword of one that there was to be destroyed to destroy the one he wanted to get out of the way. Now, therefore, listen, God will forgive you the penalty, but the consequences of sin will follow the rest of your days. Now, notice, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you not only despise my commandment, but you despise me, and have taken the right wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You did it secretly, but I'll do it openly before all Israel. Thou hast despised me makes it inescapably plain that when you and I sin, uh, wrong an individual or indivi uh, injure a person, we're sinning against God Almighty, we're in rebellion against him, or we never do that thing we do. Oh, my Lord, help us here. And you begin to see why David cried out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, you're a God of compassion. You're a God of love. Have mercy. Have mercy upon me. If God didn't have mercy on him, he could run to the temple and lay hold of the horns of the altar, take him right off and put him to death, stone him to death. The longer I live, the more I marvel at God's mercy. I tell you, I marvel at God's mercy. I marvel how God will allow men today under the profession of religion and a super something of religion to wreck and destroy and pull down every, everything they can and wreck and destroy every man that is trying to do the right thing for God and to bring question in people's minds about them and so on and let them go right on dueling that hellish thing. I was going to say something, I better choke that one down. I think of a letter that I saw. Preacher wrote it about another preacher. 
and told all you not have heard the awful words that came out of that man there on the uh, as he had charge of thee. Oh, you not have hear the awful words, the awful not one word of truth in it, and yet it's gone all over the country and wrecked the influence of that man. Go right on professing, go right on preaching, and it looks like having big success. God isn't through yet. I find myself, not so much now, I'm getting a little better on it. But when I was a younger preacher, I felt like uh, they reported Martin Luther to feel. He said, uh, I could, uh, I felt at times I could club evil men to death. Well, haven't you felt like clubbing some folks that are doing so much damage? Huh? Years ago, well, I had over 200 preaching too, but I had no salary. I got my salary after I got through preaching. You know how much I get sometimes. <laughs> they gave me my salary as I stood at the door shaking hands with them after I got through preaching. It was in the days of depression. Get a quarter, half a dollar, somebody give you a dollar, I tell you, you felt like jumping and shouting. Had to live on five, eight dollars a week. I had an old fellow, in, uh, not old then, but he was a big business fellow and... Uh, he, he'd shake hands with me, and I'd feel something in my hand. I knew what it was. It was a $10 bill. Why, there's more than the whole congregation had given me for that week. But you know, he belonged to Masonic Order. And every once in a while, the Lord would make me tear into his old Masonic Order. And then when he'd come to shake hands, <laughs> nothing in the hand. <laughs> you know whether you're preaching for God or money or not. Amen. His wife would come to the service at night with the three boys, sit there and tears start quietly running down her cheeks. Wife would slip to her after the service, say, what's the matter? Oh, my husband got so mad at yours. Now, he was a friend of mine. In spite of that, he fought for me. <laughs> they respect you when you do the thing that's right and they know it's right. She said, my husband got some attitudes this morning. He said, if I go to church tonight, he's going to lock me out. And he'd lock her out. And she and the three boys would have to go to a neighbor's and stay all night and hurry up and get up there 5 o'clock in the morning and get his breakfast and take his devilish abuse. If I'd had my way, I'd have clubbed him a few times. <laughs> Why? Anything I can't understand is a man. He's not a man. He's, he's less than a man that will fight his wife that wants to do right and live for God. I can't understand a man like that. I'd left the pastor, gone in the presidency, and uh, next thing I knew, that man got saved, came here to Stoneboro Camp, got sanctified, went back home in a little while, was in eternity with God, a saved individual. I tell you, I marvel at God's mercy. I marvel at his grace, don't you? If God hadn't had mercy on you or me, he said, Lord, act like you are. You're a God of compassion. Now give me all of that. Then he said, add into it, I'll just have to be brief. He said, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, just pile them all up in me. Well, you say, Brother Van Wormer, I'm not like David. I never committed adultery. I never committed murder. I never did anything like that. 
Ah, don't sit too comfortable. Are you despising God? Are you despising his commandments? Are you despising the thing God has laid down here? I'll never, I'll never go to hell because the enormity of my sin. I'll go to hell because of my attitude toward Jesus Christ and my attitude toward the light. What is your attitude toward Jesus Christ? What is your attitude toward him? You say, I never killed anybody, but you've crucified the Son of God. You've crucified him. You've killed him. When you reject him and won't let him into your heart and into your life, what are you doing? You're killing him. God is a God of wrath. Haven't got time to get into that. You study it. He's a God of wrath. Read it in Romans, the first chapter. If you ever read anything studied today, you ought to read Romans 1, 18 on. For the wrath of God is manifest from heaven against uh, all ungodliness and wickedness of men who hold down or suppress the truth or who uh, uh, imprison it in, in their soul. But I like the translation, don't know how I found it. Who push aside the truth. Ah, that's it. The wrath of God is manifest from heaven against every individual uh, that's pushing aside, shoving aside, pushing away his truth. What are you doing with his truth? Do you realize the greatest sin you and I can commit is rejection of Jesus Christ? God will never ask you the judgment. Were you a murderer? Were you adulterer and this and that? He'll say, what did you do with my son? And I want to tell you the wrath of Almighty God. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of anger against sin. He's a God that's rigidly holy. Notice in Hebrews, the 12th, uh, 10th chapter, and the 26th verse on. If ye go on sinning willfully and deliberately, after that you have a full knowledge of truth. What's he talking about? Get right up here and walk out of here in the face of light and go out there and do what you know is wrong. What's he say? There is nothing left for us but a kind of awful, fearful prospect and expectation of divine judgment and the fury of God Almighty in his wrath. I'm not getting to you that in your rebellion and you're pushing truth aside and God aside, the wrath of God Almighty is right over your head and ready to break. Notice what he said. If in the days of Moses, anybody violated in the face of two or three witnesses, they were stoned. What do you say? How much sterner, severe punishment do you think he shall be thought worthy who had trampled underfoot the Son of God? What are you doing with the Son of God? Well, you sit easy and say, well, I haven't done what David had done. No, but we do something worse than David did. Ours is the Son of God. Well, I don't know whether I'm getting it to you or not. Well, the way you look. We trampled underfoot the Son of God and done despite to the blood covenant. What is it? Counting the blood of Jesus Christ just ordinary human blood. If I had to go to hell, I'd rather go from the darkest part of heathenism than to go out of this tabernacle the light we have to hell. 
You and I better be careful how we deal with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's insulted the Holy Spirit. Just simply push aside the Holy Spirit. I've been found fault with, but you'll go ahead and find fault. You and I have no right to say that a person is a good person. I don't care how clean or moral they're living when they're rejecting Jesus Christ. They're wicked. They're godless. And we're so used to saying, oh, well, but they're such a good person. You're not good when you're in rebellion against God. The wrath of God Almighty hangs over your head. Dr. Torrey tells about a place he was preaching in. He was preaching on uh, for all of sin. And a, a lordly, cultured, educated fellow exploded and came up to Dr. Torrey. He said, uh, uh, in his anger, he said, I want you to realize I'm not a sinner like anyone else. I'm not a church member too. But you place me down on the level of everyone else. I want you to know I'm not down there. That takes you good and moral people in that claim you're all ready for heaven without God. I appreciate morality. I appreciate goodness. I appreciate cleanness. But that will never get you through. And he stormed against Dr. Torrey. Uh, he said, it's true, not, it's true I'm not a church member, but I'm a decent husband and a decent father. I'm an honorable citizen and upright man. What sin do you charge me with? Dr. Torrey, without batting an eye, said, I charge you with treason against the high almighty God. What is it? It's treason to reject God. It's treason to reject Jesus Christ. It's treason to turn him down. When David saw the awfulness of it and the wrath of God and there wasn't a ray of hope, have you seen yourself down in the grave of spiritual death? By birth we're under the wrath of God. By nature we're under the wrath of God. We're born with a sinful nature. Oh, God, help us. Let's pray God will take a hold here this morning. Doesn't seem like we're getting through. We seem to be in a kind of a chloroformed atmosphere today. My God, get through to us. And I make you see what a fearful thing it is to reject Jesus Christ. Don't you ever call your husband or your wife or your children good when they're in rebellion against God. They're wicked. And you'll never see what it means until you see the wrath of God hanging over you. David saw it. But Nathan said, Jehovah hath forgiven thy sin. Thou shalt not die. There's hope for you. Then he said, brought out. Oh, I wish I had time here. Brought out a race. Oh, how I'd like to tell you 53 years ago. When I came out of the service with habits on me, I thought I never could. I thought I could. Well, when I get home, I'll just drop them off. I got home. I didn't drop them off. Now I tell you, I got down on my knees. God looked down at me, said, son, you'll never have to gamble again. You'll never have to smoke again. You'll never have to go to theater again. That takes the TV in. I don't have God enough to put a TV in my home. Amen. I'd be monkeying around with something white as an old wild west thing. And it's the same deadly thing. And God looked down at me and I looked up at him. 
And he said, son, you'll never have to do that again. 53 years, I never smoked a cigarette. I've never been in a theater or monkeyed around with a television. I've never monkeyed around with gambling or anything else. Thank God. He erased it. He brought it out. Do you know anything about having your sins erased? That's what he was wanting. I think of the Russian prince figured up his big gambling debt and wrote debt and wrote on the bottom, who can pay? Dropped his head down, he went to sleep. The czar looked over his shoulder and saw the tremendous debt and wrote under the bottom, the czar can pay. When he lifted up his head, he saw there was one that was able. I couldn't pay the debt, but thank God there was one that paid the debt for me. Amen. And he erased my sin like you erase it off from a blackboard. Then he cried out, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from thy presence. I'll tell you, we're in a day when a lot of people ought to begin to pray that. Why did he pray that way? Here's Saul. There's nobody that sinned like Saul did. And there's nobody that asked God to forgive him like Saul did. And it never meant any more than just a lot of you when you're asking forgiveness. But Saul never committed the sin deliberately, willfully. He's always pressured into it by the crowd or something else. But here's a man that deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, premeditatively did it. And he said, if God didn't speak to Saul for 27 years and he cast him off, what's going to happen to me? Take not thy presence from me. Don't cast me off. Better be careful how you act in this camp meeting. Better be careful how you get up and walk out of here. Saying, I won't do it. No, you don't have to. Then the last time I was in Brother Mailey's church, young fellow got up there and said, right here in this seat, when I was 17 years of age in a revival, I said no to God. It doesn't suit me tonight. I'm not going to yield my heart to you. And walked out. He said, for three years, I never heard God's voice. He said, I couldn't get anywhere. He said, I began to pray, Lord, if you'll only speak to me, if you'll only do something, I don't care whether it's in the store, on the street, in the shop, wherever it is, I'll get right down on my knees and ask you to forgive me. And he said, three years later, right here in the same seat, I heard his voice, and I out of the seat of the altar. Amen. How many am I talking to this morning? It's been a long time since you've heard God's voice or seen God's smile. You've gone right on professing. I think it was the last time Sister Bloom spoke from this platform. She said she'd just come from some big church in the South, some Wesley Methodist church. She said that's when TV was just coming in. She said I had 39 families in that church had put TV in their homes and 17 official members of that church admitted to her they hadn't heard God's voice for years. And one man said, Sister Bloom, will you pray? If I could only hear God's voice once more, I'd give my right arm. What would you give? Amen. He said, hide thy face. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now notice his second, his reason for the appeal. He said, my transgressions, my iniquity. He's awakened here, and he's acknowledging 
He said, it's my sins, my transgression. Have you had an awakening? Do you know what it means to sin against God Almighty? We aren't awake today. We have no consciousness. The average one's coming to our order. I'm not interested in giving all her calls today. I'm not interested in this humanistic, psychological emotionalism we're going through today. Just come and ball a little and get up and go out and do what we want to do. I want you to come down here and know what you're doing. Oh, now, you probably dumped me over, but a good many of our big older services here, right in this tabernacle, don't amount to that with those individuals. I don't mean it. Come laughing, chewing gum. Now, write me off if you want to. I'd like to see God come on this camp with such a revelation of Himself and His holiness and His rigid righteousness. Let that be a going down before God with acknowledgement, a, a knowledge of sin. I was in a camp, tent meeting years back. Still when I was in school. I suppose there were between four and five hundred in that tent. I'd walked the floor all day. Just wrung my hands. I was a preacher, I'll be sure your sin will find you out. I just a wringing my hands. And walking the floor, that thing burning me like fire. I sat on the platform with the pastor, and I looked over that congregation. I didn't see. God said, the man I sent you for, that message is not here. I turned to the pastor, and I said, the man that God has laid that message on my heart for is not here. What am I going to do? He said, you'll have to preach it. He knew the man was in town. He was a preacher they'd taken his credentials from. But they didn't have the absolute proof like they should have had it. He was in sin with a woman that was playing the piano in the tent meeting. When I get through preaching at night and wife and I go to bed, the preacher and his wife would get up and go and visit her and comfort her. She said, well, brother, that woman just preaching right in me. Well, I didn't know anything about it. He said, you'll have to preach it. I got up with no heart to preach. As I stepped up there, I saw the tent flap open. Here came this woman's uh, husband. With that preacher, God said, there's your man. There he is. I tell you, I wasn't tied by like I am now. I walked right down the aisle, stood right there and preached to him. They show your sin will find you out. Yes, yes, that's right, brother. Then amen, praise the Lord. What was it? He had no awakening. He never did get awakening. I want to tell you, I'm a firm believer. Write me off if you want to. If you as a preacher or an interlayman deliberately, willfully commit adultery in the light, I don't believe there's a ray of hope for you. And there was no hope for that man. Sat there and acknowledged it. Here's another instance. Brother Elisha, probably tell me who the singer was. Because in his church, as there in a meeting, he had a, no, quite a noted fellow as a singer. I use this illustration. One of the biggest preachers in the holiness movement of that day. One of the big wigs. Pardon me for that expression. One of the big fellows. I, don't, I try to be careful with some of this stuff. Oh, Dr. So-and-so. Dr. So-and-so's here. Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> You be careful how you doctor so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. 
the desperate prayer of my life has been, while I've been giving these studies, God will hide me so behind his truth you don't see me. Talk about me. Had Dr. So-and-so on the platform to pray. Oh, Dr. So-and-so's here in that big national holiness camp. Called on him to pray. He knelt down. He uttered a few words. He couldn't pray. He couldn't do a thing. He just stopped and said, I can't pray in this atmosphere. Why? There's a revelation of God there. There's so much of God on that place. There's such a revelation that he saw his sin. What was it? He just got poisoned to his wife and got rid of her and got poisoned to the woman he wanted to get uh, to marry and got rid of her husband. And there he's under profession trying to pray. Don't you fool yourself. God deals with sin, and he'll deal with you when the time comes. David said, my transgressions, my iniquity. He had a tremendous reservation. He wasn't rationalizing now. He said, he's ever before my mind. He's ever in front of my eyes. I can't get away from it. You better think how that sin is going to look that you want to commit down the road here when he comes back in consequences. Chrysostom said that David carried a painted picture of murder and adultery in his heart all the rest of his life. Why? He never went to bed to go to, to sleep for what he thought of that bed that he defiled. He never sat down to a meal for what he thought of Uriah sitting right there beside him when he tried to make him drunk to go home and to cover up his sin. But Uriah had more honor and sense than David did. God help us. He never took a pen, but what he thought of that uh, time that he took a piece of paper and wrote a note to Joab, his general, said, put Uriah in the front of the battle, the hottest place, and then pull back and let him die. Then he never sat down to there, but what he thought of how he handed over the death warrant of Uriah to Uriah himself to deliver to Joab. How many death warrants have you delivered to individuals that killed the influence? Well, I, I must get somewhere here in a hurry. You pray, will you? His confession. He said, for I acknowledge my transgression. Trace that word down. And it means rebellion. He said, I acknowledge that I was in rebellion against you. I had a sinful nature in here that I didn't realize. I was in rebellion against you. I was in rebellion against you, and I was in rebellion against your commandments. Or I'd have never done it. He wasn't rationalizing like people are today. Oh, well, Bathsheba was to blame. He didn't say that. She was to blame, but I mean, she no business out there. He didn't say, well, circumstances were getting me. Sure, there were, but he didn't say that. He didn't say a lot of things. Rationalize around it like we're trying to do today. But he said, it's my sin, my iniquity. If I'd have been right in here, that never would have happened. I want to tell you, you keep right in here, there's nothing on the outside that can do you any damage or hurt you. It's a matter of keeping right in here. 
I'll have to get briefly along here. Notice the two things that are mentioned in this confession. Now, don't you listen carefully. Here's what we're not seeing today. He said, against thee, and thee only have I sinned. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? No. Didn't he sin against Uriah? No. Didn't he sin against his army? No. Didn't he sin against his general, uh, general Joab? No. You and I can't sin against an individual. Well, don't hold your breath too long. You and I injure an individual. You and I wrong an individual because we're in sin and rebellion against God. That's why you do it. If you weren't in rebellion against God, you'd never injure or wrong an individual. Our trouble today is we're trying to deal with crime. We're not getting to the root of the thing that causes the crime. The crime can be forgiven, but not the sin. That has to be eradicated out of the nature. Oh, God. See what I'm trying to get you to see? Every time you lie about some individual to bring them down, you slap God in the face. You sin against him. You wrong that individual. Every time you do something towards somebody, you just slap God in the face. Dr. Riley, that great preacher, told about a man, he was a gambler and had a saloon and everything that was wicked. He made up his mind that day he was going to kill his wife and his family and kill himself. As he came to his home to carry out the uh, deed, when he walked into the house, something fastened on him and he ran out of the house and fell in the grass. He said, as I fell on my face in the grass, I never thought of my drunkenness. I never thought of my gambling. I never thought of my licentiousness. I never thought I was going about my killing my wife and my children and myself. He said, all that I could see was, and it rang like a siren in my mind, against thee and thee only. There's what we're not seeing at all. We're not seeing the thing. That's why you can rationalize around it. Notice he said, in thy sight. God said you thought it was secret. But he said everybody's going to know it, and everybody did. Look at what followed. His son Ammon defiled their Tamar, his half-sister. And his other son killed his brother as a result. Absalom drove him off from the throne, pushed him out of the country. What was it? Consequences. God had forgiven him. You say, well, I'll stay getting sin then. I'll get forgiven. You may be forgiven, but I want to tell you there are consequences that you can't stop. I don't want to get into that. I think of a young fellow in the days I went to Fort Slocum where I was inducted into the army and sent to my place. When he got his physical, they, they said, You're, you, you have a venereal disease. You can't go. He said, I'm clean. I'm pure. I never did anything like that. What was it? It's the consequences of either his father or his grandfather coming out here. Be careful how you sin. You think there's a law in this universe you and I cannot break. Whatever your soul. 
I don't care with all your education, all your plyver, and all your rationalization, and all your smartness. And there's never a day when we thought we're smart as we are today. And there's never a day when we're making such fools of ourselves in such a chaotic mess as we're making today. Why? The consequences are coming. Well, I'll have to briefly mention this here. I don't dare look at the clock, and don't you look at your watch. You got nothing to do today but to worship God. Amen. If I can get it without my dinner, my condition a little while, you certainly can. Well, amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. What did he see? He saw uh, uh, the root of the thing. He traced it right back. Yes, sir. He said, I was shapen in iniquity. I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in a sinful nature, a bent, twisted nature that was bound to do wrong. I never saw that before. If he'd have seen that, when he met Abigail, uh, he, he controlled himself then. But her husband wasn't dead only a few days before he had her as wife. He'd ought to have seen that proclivity then. It would have saved him with Bathsheba. What are you doing with some of those things that show up? Huh? You better watch out. I know some men and some preachers said, if I don't listen, when Brother Van Wormer is preaching to what God tried to get to me, it would have saved me from this. But they wouldn't listen. He's not traducing his mother. He was born in holy wedlock. His mother is a godly woman. His father was a godly man. I don't care how godly you are, your children are born with the same hellish nature that every one of us is born with. And you've got to deal with the thing. And here's where he deals with it. Now, pray, I'll try to be brief here. The remedy that he sought. He said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inner part. You want truth down in here. 19th Psalm in the 12th verse. He said, Who can know his secret errors? Who can know the weaknesses down in here? You better ask God to show you the weaknesses down in here that you don't know anything about to control and discipline and master. Then he gives the twofold desire. Blot out, erase my sin. Uh, purge me from my outbroken sin. And then he said, uh, wash me thoroughly through and through from my iniquity. He said, uh, trample me, beat me, tread me down, hammer me with violence, dash me against stone, do anything you want to with me, but get that thing out of me. How many of you see seeking God today? Holiness. He's, what's he saying? Put me right down in the trough. He said, don't wa wash me uh, like a man washes his face, but wash me like a fuller does. Put me right in the trough. You get right in there and tramp on me, tramp it out of me. You ever seen God to tramp the thing out of you? He said, the stain is so deep, you'll have to get right in there and just tramp it out of me. Beat me with knowledge. Beat me with a hammer. Beat me anyway. Scrub me. Oh, makes me think when I was in France and Germany 57 years ago. I had to go down in the center of the place to wash my clothes and everybody could see how dirty they were. Because there's a pile of pool right there and you know, there's neither stone or cement sliding down in and you had something to kneel in and lay your clothes there and take a scrubbing brush and scrub them and wash them and everybody around looking. He said, put me on the scrubbing board. Oh, our young people don't think about it. 
I've seen my mother at the scrubbing board, uh, just a scrubbing and scrubbing, and she'd hold it up to the light, put it down, scrub it some more, hold it up some more. Who's a judge? My mother was a judge. Close could say, hey, I've had enough. You've run me enough. Stop. My mother said, not yet. She was a judge. And God, when he gets a scrubbing, you, you begin to squawk and begin to holler. Stop, stop. Let God be the judge. Let him scrub you. Let him hammer you. Let him pound you till he gets a thing out of it. Then he said, create in me a clean heart. I mentioned that in the Bible study. Isn't it something? He brings a word bara, the Hebrew word bara, that's in use in Genesis 1.1. There's a difference between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 in the remaking of the earth and the creation of it. Don't they let these smart evolutionists fool you? That's what a Hebrew word means to create without any pre-existing material. When God originally created the universe, just threw it out here out of nothing. And David says, my heart is so wicked. I see the depths of it. I see what I never saw before. It's so wicked. It's so desperately wicked. Study Jeremiah when he said, Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and no man can know it. I don't know my heart now, and neither do you know your heart. I don't know what possibilities down in there, a weakness in there that I've never seen or known. That's why I'm scared. Some circumstance, some condition comes. And there's a weakness there I've never known or dealt with. And I yield. He said, you'll have to bring creation in. Then he said, you'll put a right spirit within me. Steadfast spirit. That'll help you when you're voted out. I mean, they just didn't vote you back in. You won't raise a fuss in the church. Get everybody around you and cause a storm and a mess. When you just don't happen to get your way as a preacher. I'll tell you, when I was Calvin's president, I'd ought to have had my own way, hadn't I? But I didn't. I had a board of men sitting around there could think just as much and better than I could think. And they didn't all disagree. Did I go out in a storm and a fuss? Well, amen. <laughs> amen. If I had, I couldn't be preaching to you like I am now. Men sitting right here sat there with me. Well, amen. Lord, help us. How did you act? I was going to pass this up, but he's holding me right here. How did you act when they took you on the piano stool or the organ stool? Huh? Well, amen. I better go on here. He said, give me an experience that is whiter than snow. Thank God there's an experience that will hold you in your home life. Keep you clean in your home life. Keep you clean in your business life. Help you with our young people to keep clean in their courtship. They won't be sitting around the back of automobiles and out in the dark doing things that gets them in difficulty. You don't have God enough to do those things and not get in trouble. I think of a businessman. He, they put out an ad for a, a man and a hundred uh, answered the ad and they trimmed it down to 20 and the 20 were sitting there waiting, and he said, now before we decide here, we'll just go over here across the street and have a drink. 19 men jumped up, they all wanted that job, and they thought if I jump quicker, I'll get it. One man was just still sitting there. He said, sir, if you don't mind, I'm a Christian. 
I don't drink. I won't go with you. He said, all right, Teresa, you go. This is the man we want. It'll keep you clean. Amen. Let me give you these two illustrations, and I promise you I'll close. Poor Brother Blair was more right in his, in his prediction than he realized. I've done my best to defeat him. You don't know what you'll do with that thing in you. Dr. Bob Jones, Sr., was in a big city campaign. And after the service one night, one of the laymen there to, stayed in the same hotel he was staying in. And on the way from the meeting, he walked down to the hotel with him. He said, Dr. Bob Jones, did you see in the paper why Reverend so-and-so had killed that lady in Boston? And he's in the Boston cell for murder. What do you think of it? Dr. Jones said, yes, I saw it. But I don't know enough about the case to know anything about it. What do you know? He said, what do I know? He said, I know that man's not guilty. He was my pastor. I've sat under his preaching. They put him in the chair. They're going to railroad an innocent man to the chair. I've heard him preach many a times. He's been in my home. He's prayed in my home. I want to tell you, Dr. Jones, that man is not a murderer. They put him in the chair. They're going to railroad an innocent man. He said, I know. I thought he wasn't the strongest character. There's some weaknesses. But Dr. Jones, they put him in the chair. They railroaded him. The next morning, Dr. Jones came down to the lobby. Big headline. Reverend so-and-so in his Boston cell admitted that he killed so-and-so. Dr. Jones took the paper and walked over to him as he came into the lobby and said, did you see this? Yes, yes, I saw it. Oh, Dr. Jones, how could he do it? How could he do it? How could he do it? Dr. Jones said, if you'd asked him two years ago the same question, no, sir, I couldn't do a thing like that. No, sir. That's why I'm saying to you, there's some of you here, you don't get deeper with God. You don't know what you're going to do down here. You tell me, no, sir, I'll not do it. He said, Dr. Jones, he's had family prayer with me. How could he do it? How could he do it? Dr. Jones, I couldn't do a thing like that. Couldn't you? Dr. Jones said, man, you don't know what you do. That man still would have said the same as you said to me. How could I do it? When he began to trifle with this woman's affection and trifle with sin, he finally took her virtue from her. And then to cover it up, committed murder. He said, you don't know what you do. You don't know what you do. Will you let me give a personal illustration? My precious youngest brother dropped dead three years ago. When I came home from the service, Oh, have pity on these boys that had been in the service and taught to kill. And have no God. 
The easiest thing in the world is to kill. We've been taught to do that. My brother and I went in business together. We bought Dad out on the big farm. I didn't realize how shattered my system was from shell fire and gas. I knew I was having plenty of trouble. Because one day was in the barn. Only God's mercy had my middle brother there. I wouldn't have been preaching to you. Amen. Somebody said to me, Harold, what you'll do? I said, no, sir. No, sir. No, sir. I don't know what it was about, but that old thing of mine, a fearful temper I had, when we were in Koblenz, Germany, we were, after the war is over, we're playing what they call the doughboy game. I guess there's close to 200 in the thing. We'd won the regimental championship. We're playing for the divisional championship. And you weren't allowed to pick the ball up. Fellow accused me of picking it up. That's the wrong thing to do in those days, I can tell you that. Next thing I knew, there's about a dozen on top of me, and he and I are on the bottom. The officer came in, broke it up, saw me on the bottom, and he said, you're under arrest. I went back to the lines, put on my blouse. He saw the rank I held. He said, oh, that's all right. Just forget it. I said, I'll never salute you as long as I live. That thing was right out of the top. Mine didn't rise up and go down. When he got up, that stayed there. It didn't go down. So wonder I wasn't putting a the jug. They had discipline in those days. You didn't salute in those days. Something happened. All I could see was that miserable, stinking second lieutenant coming down the street in Koblenz, Germany. I couldn't see the other generals or majors or colonels or anything else. All I could see was him. I didn't I tell you I wouldn't salute you? Didn't I tell you? You better be careful if you don't get rid of that thing. I never thought when my brother pressed, pressed me with something, I grabbed that neck yoke. You know, the heavy iron neck yoke between horses. I had it right over my shoulder. He couldn't have got out of the way. But my other brother grabbed the ring as it came over my shoulder. said, Harold, how do you do it? I crashed. Then I broke. I was in bed paralyzed for two weeks. Listen, folks, I've had pressure put on me as a preacher from churches and from preachers and from people. My brother knew nothing about what, thank God, there was nothing in there to rise up or to want to retaliate. Aren't you glad you can get rid of that thing? You don't know what you'll do with that thing in your heart. I never thought I'd do that with my brothers, only God's mercy that saved me. Aren't you glad you can get rid of that hellish thing? Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.